welcome to the first intuition podcast on this episode myself and dave held a live student surgery students were able to ask us questions following their results or to do with their upcoming studies we're taking a break now for the summer but there will be various re-released episodes and we will be setting back up in early September. Look out for the link to register for the live sessions. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the First Intuition Student Forum and podcast recording. My name is Ben Bullman, and I'm joined again this evening by my good friend and colleague, David Malthouse. Good evening, Dave. Evening, Ben. And uh, I don't know about you, but it's feeling still pretty hot here. For, for listeners that are, are listening at some point in the future, we have just gone through the hottest day ever in the UK yesterday. And although the temperatures come down significantly today, it's still feeling mighty hot here. I don't know about you, Ben, is it, is it warm up in Cambridge? It's still feeling warm. Yesterday was incredibly hot. Lots of stuff going on across the country, but quite a sad day on a personal level because I don't know if you're aware, up until yesterday, the previous record temperature in the UK was recorded in Cambridge. Cambridge being the city of my birth, the city where I've spent most of my working professional career. And we lost the title yesterday. It moved around. If anybody was tracking it, I think at one point Heathrow were holding the record yesterday. I think it finally settled out with the top temperature being in a town or village in Lincolnshire. But Cambridge has lost the official title of recording the UK's highest ever temperature. And, and particularly sad for me there, because, as you know, I, I was kind of raised in Cambridge and um, went to sixth form college in, this, in, in a, a college in Cambridge. And the previous record holder was at the Botanical Gardens in Cambridge, which is just down the road from where I went to college. And I did spend many happy uh, summer afternoons when I had free periods just popping down the road to the botanical gardens and if anyone hasn't has, has never been there and is in Cambridge it is a beautiful place to spend some time it's a really really lovely part of part of Cambridge um, you, you kind of almost forget you're virtually in the heart of a city when you're there um, so yeah I, I'm, I'm going to be sad now because whenever the news is reported of we might hit the highest temperature and it's held by I always get that kind of rush of nostalgia as they mentioned, the Botanical Gardens in Cambridge. The Botanical Gardens is a great shout, Dave. Um, for any guys that come to the FI Centre in Cambridge, it is literally the other side of the road on Hills Road. It um, can't be more than three minutes walk from the FI Cambridge Centre. And I know a number of our staff go for a wander around there at lunchtimes. So if you've not checked out the Botanical Gardens in Cambridge, please come and, and add it to your Cambridge tourist hotspots come and have a look around um but not the hottest spot in the country anymore how were you keeping cool yesterday dave i was working in the office ben and i had the um i was working in an air-conditioned classroom so um it was actually relatively nice um I, I did um one of my colleagues popped out at lunchtime came back in and she said it was because it was quite windy as well where we were and she said it was like walking around with a hairdryer permanently blowing at your face the whole time and um, yeah it, it didn't seem like a pleasant experience so I, I stayed in the office until about seven o'clock last night and then came home um, and then kind of just melted at home um, over overnight but yeah it was much very very appreciative of the air conditioning in the office. I was actually working from home yesterday bad decision I hear you all say because it was really really hot um, I did go for a little trip out over lunchtime. I had to drop a folder to a student at a firm down the road. So I went and delivered that. And then I popped into our local branch of Lidl's. Other supermarkets are available, listeners. But Lidl's had some phenomenal air conditioning going. And I really enjoyed 20 minutes just walking around there to cool down. And then when I got home in the evening, my two girls were out in the garden. We've not got a swimming pool. We've just got a little inflatable paddling pool. But that was up. And so they were in there and then I got pushed in and actually quite enjoyed just laying in it in my clothes <laughs> until it was time to, to drain it and come out. But I'd like to spare a thought. We had a number of students um, this week. So Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday. Today, it's finished that the three hottest days doing advanced stage ICAW exams. And I feel really, really for them. They yeah. have some of them done a three and a half hour exam on Monday 
and three and a half hour exam on Tuesday and a four hour exam today. So that's a real slog, particularly when a number of them emailed me on Monday after the first exam saying there was not a whiff of any air conditioning in the exam rooms that we were in. That's not pleasant, is it? And, and then when you've got to go home to this kind of heat and then not sleep properly all the way through the night and then perform in the exam room the next day and then the next day, that is it's a, yeah, really brutal, those kind of conditions. Those, those mock exams that we got them to do in the FI centre for the last couple of weeks hopefully have paid off in conditioning training. Um, I might make a note of this for this time next year and not allow any air conditioning in the rooms whilst they're the doing mock exams at FI just to kind of climatise. A bit like an athlete that goes and starts training in Kenya to get some altitude training, over-prepare for the heat factor for the exams. Perfect. So we thought tonight on the back of exam results, we would do this as a live recording. So we've got a live Zoom audience of students with us. They've got access to a chat box. So any guys live this evening, if you've come with something that you want to ask us about results and about how that will have a bearing on your future study plans, please do so. Myself and Dave can also share some um, of our own experiences and our own advice around what to do post exam results. So I'm looking into the chat box and I don't know, guys, if anybody's come with a question they would like myself and Dave to discuss. We're going to keep people's names confidential, so we're not going to share full names. I might refer to first names, but no one would be able to track and identify you by that. So please, guys, I'm encouraging you. If you've got a question, if you've had results recently, you want some help, you want some support, you want some inspiration on what you're doing next, um, go for it. So, Ben, in, in where we are now, for people that are maybe listening to this as they uh, are, are walking their dogs in kind of like mid-November, um, as we sit here today, we have had um, ACCA exam results released on Monday um, and we had ICAW exam results released the Friday before that. And on an ongoing basis, we will have AAT results and SEMA results, uh, results coming through. And we get a range of different people contacting us over the course of this week from people that are celebrating success and you know I had some amazing emails on kind of Monday morning at about two in the morning from um, students that had completed their exams that were just so excited our very own um, apprentice in our office um, Danny he completed his ACCA studies last week as well and he got his final pass so loads and loads of you know really positive messages um, and then as time goes on you then start to get um start to get people kind of like contacting us because they haven't quite got the mark that they wanted uh, and quite often it, it, the question that they're asking us is you know what do i do next how do you know how do i you know pick myself back up and how do i you know push on again to study this should i do the exam again all kinds of questions but i think that the 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 you know the the questions that that we don't get asked as much that i think are just as important are if someone has passed their exam, you know, what should they do? So, you know, if, if someone was to ask you that question, say, Ben, I've just passed my exam. I don't know what to do next. What's your advice? Um, I think reflect. Don't rush in. But I think the first thing I wanted to acknowledge, the way the exams for most of the qualifications are now structured, there are deadlines for a number of exams to be booked. And what you quite often find, AAT students, you'll have experienced this maybe with synoptics. You've got deadlines for those. And once you've got your result, the deadline is pretty much open straight away for the next round of sittings. ICAW, ACCA would be the same. SEMA case studies also work like that. So I would suggest the first thing I would want to do if you are thinking of sitting another exam on the back is go and look at the deadline for booking and try and make sure that you are not going to miss that deadline because there is nothing more frustrating than thinking I want to go on and do another unit and then realise I can't sit the exam because I failed to meet the, the deadline. Excellent. And, and the thing that I would, you know, I, I would say is that even if you have passed an exam, it's always worth thinking of two things. First of all, what marked is you there? Because you know, if the pass mark is 50% and you got 80% or 
that's a very very clear path clear path and you know quite rightly you should be proud you should be proud of any any pass that you get if you got bang on the pass mark 50 out of 50 percent and you know this is an acca exam say um the thing i would be concerned about is the exams are progressively going to get more challenging as you get through that qualification so 50% now might be good enough, but, you know, what extra do we need to do to make sure that we maintain that pass next time when we do the next exam? So look at your mark and see, you know, where, you know, where do we see that projected? If you've got 90%, then, you know, I think that you are, you know, your study technique is, is pretty much perfect. So carry on doing what you're doing. And then the other thing is reflect on how you felt when you went into that exam reflect on did you go into that exam feeling confident or did you go into that exam thinking that you know you'd really had to cram for the last week and a half leading up to the exam and it had made you feel really stressed and really nervous and really worried and do you want to repeat that feeling next time because even though you pass an exam you may not have done the work in the way that you wanted to so just evaluate do you want to change things for next time so even if you do pass you know, it doesn't necessarily mean you can't make some kind of improvement or some kind of change. I think we, we've talked about trying to be aware of the emotion that you feel when you've got your result. And that emotion we were talking about passes there. That will be uh, an emotion of relief, pride, um, an emotion of achievement. And if you can try and just remember what that feeling's like, it's going to be really powerful to motivate yourself on the, the days when you're feeling really exhausted to study, it's too hot, or coming up to the time of the year where we'll soon be saying it's now getting cold and it's dark when we get into autumn and winter study. So try and remember that feeling of success because it will be something you can draw on to motivate yourself going forward. I agree. Now, Ben, we have we have got a few questions that are that, that have come through from some of our, um, our our live audience here, and so someone is, and this sounds like it's coming from experience of an AAT exam. So this is AAT Level Four Financial Statements, and the question just yeah. talks about being overwhelmed with the sheer volume of standards that that we need to learn and understand in that exam. So you know, I, I can imagine going into that exam. You know, you've got so many different things that, you, that you, you know, all these like IAS numbers and things like that, that you've, you've got buzzing around your head and so many different definitions. And I can imagine it's very challenging, very difficult, first of all, going into the exam and trying to remember all of them. And then, you know, if you are unsuccessful in one of those exams and you're coming away from it, thinking, well, how do I actually get these things in some kind of order in my mind? So you teach financial statements. How do you actually deal with that just that volume of knowledge that you need to kind of be able to to reproduce in the exam um really good question financial reporting and this is relevant for level four financial statements for limited companies which i think is the unit this student's talking about but equally guys if you are studying SEMA and you're looking at the f1 and the f2 units or acca you guys will be doing financial reporting or maybe strategic business reporting even the ICAW guys, you've got the exams in FAR and corporate reporting. All of them require a working knowledge of the financial reporting standards. Now, my first advice for students is don't worry and overly panic about learning the standard numbers. There are very few, if any, marks for just being able to know the number of the standard. The way that the exams are assessed, it is all about your ability to understand what that standard is saying and apply it to the financial reporting scenario that you are given. So don't spend hours and hours and hours struggling with, I can't remember which number that standard on leasing is or revenue recognition. The examiners will always put the full title of the standard into your question. So they would never tell us or ask us about a standard number without then giving us the narrative of what that standard covers. So that's my first tip. Don't get bogged down in just a memory of the numbers. What you want to be able to do, though, is very quickly draw on things that are within that standard. When you see it mentioned in the exam. And a tool I've used with students is break down each of the individual standards in your syllabus. So they will be in your folder. 
go through and start with blank sheets of paper. And every time you come across a new standard in your folder, write that up as a heading on a new blank page. And then underneath that, write down five things, facts, things that are relevant, things that you want to be able to remember about that particular standard. Five things, importantly, I say five, because I can't imagine too many exam scenarios where if you can't make five constructive considered points, you won't get at least five marks. And very rarely do we see requirements that would need more than five marks to be a pass score in an assessment. And that's the minimum. You'll probably get more marks for those five points than one mark per point anyway. So once you've gone through the blank pages and written a page heading for each standard and underneath try to list out five things that you want to remember about it, then you need to start trying to learn those five. And that's going to take time. That's a building blocks process. You need to then effectively start with a blank sheet of paper, pick out one of those headings, the standard, and then see how many of those five now can you memorize and recall. And if to start with, you can recall one or two of them, great, that's one or two. Then go back to your sheet and say, right, got that one, got that one, but I need to make sure I'm also remembering that one, that one, and that one. And repeated cycles of that will build it up that I hope over a cycle of maybe three, four weeks, you can then start recounting all five for every standard. That will give you confidence because if you see it in the exam, you will think, oh, straight away, remember that. Oh, and that, and that, and that, and that. If it's a written style question and financial statements for limited companies have got some written based questions where you have to explain the standard, it gives you a nice point structure to your answer. Similarly for um, financial reporting exams at ACCA or ICAW, where you have to write um, a written understanding, explain the accounting treatment for the lease or for the revalue of the property, for example. And hopefully that will give you the confidence. It's not easy. Please don't let me um, lull you into a false sense. It's hard. It's hard to have that recall knowledge, but that requires work. But you need a structure. I don't think you'll be able to just memorize your notes because there's too much there. You need to break down your notes into your five things for each standard. I hope that helps. Yeah, I, I like that, Ben. I love your um, your five things rule because um, uh, uh, it applies to anything that you're revising, doesn't it? And if you you know if you can list five things about pretty much any subject across any of the exams, it's going to be enough to pass any exam. Because you're never going to need more than five points of knowledge about a single single theory or idea. Uh, you might have to apply them for more marks, but actually knowing them, you're not going to need to know more than five. So I, I always kind of quite like that. Now, something that, that I, I like to do to try and cope with those big volumes of information is that personally, I, I'm not very good at reading pages of stuff. Uh, I, I don't particularly like reading pages of a technical manual um, and, and I, I tend to learn best through kind of like drawing pictures uh, and you know if I can draw something as a picture now what I would tend to do is you know draw up say you know what, what do I what do I know about I know what a statement of financial position looks like uh, I know what a, um, a, a statement of income looks like and I could probably draw those down uh, and then uh, what I would then do is kind of like be, be kind of doing almost like a spider diagram where those statements are in the middle of a, a page and then I would have you know well, which standard relates to different parts within that so you know which standard relates to non-current assets or which statement relates to share-based payments um, just to kind of like map it all out on one massive lovely poster that's just because I'm not very good at when you get those dense pages of text I'm really bad at reading them and understanding where they actually fit. I always have to take it back to the, you know, the actual financial statements. I, I normally take it back even further in terms of, well, what is the fundamental debit and credit here? Because if I understand the debits and credits, I tend to understand most of the other things. Fantastic. We've got another question. I'm not going to name the student. Um, any advice for struggling with mental blocks with exam questions? Student acknowledges that they read the question 
and then struggle to start writing and lose a lot of time. They're, they're an ACCA student, but I think that could apply to, to pretty much every exam that we, we teach for. Dave, any advice springing to mind there? I've got a couple of points, but I'll let you go first on that one. Well, I, I actually had a very, very similar query to this today from someone that was uh, unsuccessful in the ACCA exams um, when the results came out last week uh, or beginning of this week. So it, it's something that I did talk a little bit about today. And the the the, the first thing was was that I needed to just to understand was, was it that there's a gap in knowledge or was it that, that the problem was a, a surprise in the exam? And when we went through things, I think we, we worked out that, that there wasn't really that much of a gap in knowledge. You know, we talked about the, um, the, the kind of the, the syllabus content that, that was going to be tested. And this student understood the syllabus content and could have a really good conversation with me about it. So and this is six weeks after they took the exam when they haven't done any studying. So clearly the student know, knew their stuff. And, and so therefore, it must have been an issue with the exam. And when we talked about the exam, um, they explained that section A of the exam um, just almost seemed to be written in a different language and they really didn't understand it. And they spent a while looking at section A and then realised, I'm not getting anywhere with section A, and then decided to move to section C and then answer the questions in section C and then answer the questions in section B and then went back to section A and then had run out of time because they, they, they couldn't get into section A as, as quickly as they wanted. So it, it was, you know, it, it sounds like a very similar, similar thing. Now, the, the reality is that exams evolve over time. So if you look at, say, a financial statements exam today, and you look at the same exam from the same syllabus six years ago, they're going to look different. And a lot of that comes from examiners look at what students do well, what students do badly, when students do things badly, they like to test them again. If students are consistently getting the same answers right time after time after time after time, the examiners start to change the way they test things because they, they want to be able to differentiate between people. If everyone gets full marks, it's very difficult to differentiate. So there is always going to be an evolution and a change in the way that exam questions are asked. It shouldn't be, you know, suddenly the exam looks completely different one year to the next but there will be slight changes from time to time. So we're always going to be faced with exams that look a little bit different or questions that look a little bit different to ones that we've seen before. So it, it's, it's difficult, therefore, to you know, prepare yourself exactly for the exam. So what you have to do is prepare yourself for being in a position where you are seeing questions for the first time. Uh, and to me, that comes back to rehearsal and practice. It, it's about making sure that you're putting yourself in the position before you take the exam of sitting a question that you've never seen before. So that, that, that just means that don't look at a question, then go straight to the, uh, don't look at a practice question, then go straight to the model solution. Don't look at a practice question, go straight to your notes. Look at a practice question and try as hard as you can to attempt it based on the knowledge you have and accept that you may not be able to do it first time. And the more you do that, and the more you put yourself in uncomfortable positions, practicing questions that you, know, you haven't ever seen before, the more comfortable you're going to start to get and, and the quicker you're going to be able to get into those questions. What about you, Ben? I, I think too many students struggle to get going. I always think if you can put the first line of your answer in, you start building some momentum. Now, I personally think that can come from actually planning. And particularly for this student, I've just seen that the exam paper that she's studying for next, the strategic business leader paper at ACCA, that's got some pretty big scenarios, quite varied and multiple requirements around those various questions and tasks. And so I think a lot of that comes from doing some planning before you start actually trying to type up your answer. I think step one is to go to the requirements first. And I encourage all students in the exam to do this. Before you read the information and the scenario, I would want to know what is the examiner asking me to do. And what I encourage students to do is write those requirements down or better still in a computerized exam, start typing them as a bit of a plan structure in your answer on the screen, because that can speed you up. Now, what I see some students doing there is taking me literally 
and writing out the whole of the requirement. I don't need you to retype out the whole requirement. If the examiner has asked you for advantages, just put a heading on the screen advantages and then leave it and then whatever else they have asked for. Now, what I would do secondly is go back and start reading the scenario. But as you come across something, just make a quick bullet point note of that point, either on your plan, if you're handwriting a plan on the desk in front of you or on the screen. Not writing the full sentences, but trying to give yourself a bit of a plan structure. Goes back to my points of five. I think if you can have five separate points under any heading, particularly in an exam like SBL, that's going to be enough points. You now need to then go and spend some time adding the detail to those points, making your bullet point plan into full sentences, adding details from the scenario, adding in numbers if possible to illustrate it. If you're really struggling to start, a lot of the exams in those higher level professional exams have got marks for the professional layout. So start with your quick introduction, quick couple of lines, then do your ending um, paragraph, couple of lines. What's the ending to your answer? And then go and type the middle bit if you need. And that just settles you in. But I appreciate one of the, the feeling students gets is being halfway through reading and then just thinking, I've just wasted five minutes because I can't remember a thing that I've read. I think if you can go to the requirement first, note that down as the plan, then go back and take your time to read it. And each point you come to, put it into your answer. I would encourage, and, and everybody's different, but Dave, in those professional exams, I would probably encourage at least a third, if not even longer of your time should be in the reading and planning. Most people can type really fast as long as you know what you need to be typing. So even if you spend half your time planning and half your time actually typing up, I would back most students to be able to manage their time to get that um, ratio to, to get you a, a comprehensive answer. I was actually going to say exactly the same there, Ben, as, as you went through, because someone, someone sent me a message um, privately talking about um, a, a, an issue with the APM paper, so Advanced Performance Management, which is one of my all-time favourite papers. Um, so I, I, as an exam, it's something that I've, I've taught for years and years and years and years. And in Section A of that exam, you've got a, um, effectively got half of the exam in Section A. So, you know, in a three-hour exam, that's 90 minutes that you're expecting to, um, to work through that. And I know that that case study looks daunting when you read it. Uh, and I, I, I frequently tell students to, um, to, to make sure they plan enough reading and planning time. So, you know, I, I would look at in a 90-minute worth of worth question, if you're spending half an hour reading and planning, that's a really effective use of your time. Um, you know, it, it, and, and don't be afraid. Don't don't try and cut that time down because that time's important. And as you say, planning is not uh, reading and planning is not just aimlessly reading. It's reading the requirement first. It's understanding the requirement. And if you've got four requirements or five requirements, the chances are one of those requirements is going to require you to be able to state some kind of textbook knowledge. So so there's a little bit there. It's like right, I understand what that is. Now I understand what the drawbacks of return on investment are. So, you know, I could list those things down as part of my planning already. Uh, and I can do that without reading the narrative of the question. So there's certain elements that I can get straight away in my plan. Uh, and then, as you say, you know, we're typing answers. So we can type, you know, it, it, you know this is where I'm going to put each part of my answer. And then as you read through, we're, we're reading through actively. Uh, and I tend to say that, you know, the first thing that you do is you, you, you know, you plan, well, first thing you do is you plan for your time and then you read the requirement. The second thing you do is you read the requirement again and make sure you've absolutely got it nailed on. And if you have to spend five minutes of your reading time or 10 minutes of your reading time, understanding what each element of that requirement is, that's really well invested time. It's much better to spend more time there than less time there and then not understand the question later on. Once you've done that, then you go through that narrative and you actively read that narrative and say, does this part of the question relate to requirement one, requirement two, requirement three? And there are some parts that are, no, that doesn't relate to any of them because it's an intro and it's just setting the scene and I'm not going to need it much later on. Oh, this paragraph, this paragraph is all about requirement number two. 
So I know that that, that element there is all about shareholders and shareholder demand. So I understand when the shareholder bit of the question, that's where I'm going to need that information. So if you can do that and just, you know, instead of just being massively overwhelmed, just take off little bites at a time. So your first bite is reading and understanding the requirements. Okay. And that's normally reading and understanding five or six sentences. Okay. Once you've done that after five minutes, then start reading the narrative. Okay. The danger is you read the narrative, you then look at the requirement, and then suddenly it's like, well, I don't know where to start here. Okay. I've got to go back and read that massive chunk of text again. So I think, yeah, absolutely. Planning is so, so important for those big questions. Brilliant. I, I hope that's helped and I wish you the best of luck for the exam in September. I've had another student drop me a private message in, in the chat box, Dave. I'm going to not not name them, but they have recently taken their level three AAT synoptic. They sat that last week. Brilliant. Well done for getting that one um, sat. As some students are aware, but if not, that one is one that you then have to wait for the result for. And that's the case for a number of the exams that we teach. Um, students saying they've got no idea if they passed or failed. They revised a lot. And in my experience, that bodes well. If you've invested time before, chances are that will be paid back when results come out. But they're asking what they should do now, really, in this funny window between sitting an exam and waiting for the confirmation of the result, be it pass or fail. At the moment, they don't know. Should they continue to revise every night or hold fire until they get the results back? They're really finding it hard to motivate themselves to do anything. What, what's your advice there for a student that's not sure whether they passed or failed, but they've sat the exam and they're now in slight limbo waiting for the result? First of all, give yourself some time. So when you take that exam, you put yourself through a very stressful um, situation. You've almost certainly been investing a lot of your time in the lead up to um, in the lead up to that exam. Uh, I know pers from personal experience, when I was in the lead up to exams, I never slept well. So you know, take you know, take a week say to recharge your batteries, to you know, make sure that you're eating properly, sleeping properly, catching up with friends, doing the things that um, that, that maybe you've had to sacrifice to get through that exam. But, uh, and once you've kind of what once you've done that, then my personal thoughts are you should always be looking forwards because, you know, you've got other exams that you will need to do at some point. So you can start studying towards them. And I know a lot of people say, well, what's the point if I fail, I'll have to go and reset. Well, you're absolutely right. If you fail, you will have to reset. But, you know, the, the options are even if you do fail, then, you know, you either fail and you don't do any work at all. OK, or you fail and you have done some work. Either way, you're going to have to jump back on and study to do that retake. But if you pass, you're already ahead of everyone else. You're already partway through there to get to the next exam. So I would always be looking forwards rather than putting yourself in a limbo position of saying, I can't do anything until I get my result. It's very, very easy to do that. Now, if you you know have put yourself through you know, a very stressful situation and you do need six weeks just to unwind and recharge, then that's a brilliant use of your time as well. So it really depends on how much the exam's taken out of you as to whether it should be actually relax and wait, or if you've got the energy and you're ready to go, just get ahead. Fantastic. Yeah, I think my biggest piece of advice is just make sure that you've got your study notes, your folder in good shape before you then go and put it on the shelf and come back to it if you do need to use it for the reset. I know I'm I'm notorious for writing scrappy notes. For those of you that are watching on the webcam, I'm holding it up. I do it every week for the podcast. I do it throughout most things in my life, actually. And I think my only piece of advice for that would be great, but just put them in a bit of shape that if you do have to pick that folder back up in another few weeks, because unfortunately the result has not gone well, you can pick it back up and not reinvent the wheel with everything you've got there certainly don't go and have a bonfire in the garden and burn your folder before you've got the results through because I have heard some students that have done that as a bit of a, a rite of passage I've sat the exam now I'm just going to trash my notes and that can be quite regret regrettable particularly if you have to reset or if you have to revisit some of the concepts for an earlier unit in a later paper and, and quite often there are themes that will come back if you progress in your studies to higher levels and having those old folders is quite useful as a point of reference back to at that stage. But let's hope the results go well. Really, really good luck with the result for your level three synoptic. 
Um, I hope you're celebrating when results are out in a couple of weeks. Dave, next one, we've got um, quite a big um, question in the, the, the chat box or a series of questions to unpick. Again, I'm not going to name the individual, but the first one is this student is studying AAT level four, fantastic level, and the, the final level to gain the MAAT qualification. They've passed two exams, so that's good. They've made progress. They're waiting for results in another one, personal tax, currently studying business tax. Um, seem to be having a bit of a problem with financial statements for limited companies. So in good company, because we've already said that one is a challenging exam. I think I'm right in saying it's the biggest um, unit in the current AAT syllabus for level four. Um, struggled with it and didn't ever get round to sitting the exam. And we see this from time to time, particularly in the qualifications that are modular. And there might be a unit that you really hit a wall with. And you move to another unit and you maybe make progress there, but you've got to always come back to that unit that you've now built up to be something um, quite scary, quite daunting. First thing to acknowledge is it looks like you're studying with our AAT distance learning colleagues. I would hope you have got a tutor contact at our distance learning team. I would drop your tutor an email. They are a fantastic bunch of guys in the AAT DL team at First Intuition. And I'm sure they will give you some support, give you some reassurance for the financial statements. I'm pretty confident they will continue to keep your online resources open for you at the point that you need them. And I can't speak for them, but I would be surprised if they wouldn't let you or certainly do a deal to reattend if there were live sessions that you wanted to attend for the financial statements for limited companies. I suppose the only slight caveat to that is the clock is ticking for the new syllabus for AAT. So you have got a number of months left to do it, but I'm not sure whether the distance learning team will be running live sessions much beyond the end of this year for the current syllabus, because the vast majority of students will then be studying the new Quals 2022 syllabus that the AAT are launching. So my advice for point number one is contact your distance learning tutor, and I'm sure they will do whatever they can to support you and provide you access to as many resources as we've got. We're also running the live AAT revision sessions, and there are lots of resources also on our YouTube channel for financial statements for limited companies. So go and check out those additional resources that you've got access to. Um, second question, and I'm going to come to you for this one, Dave, hopefully looking to have passed their AAT level four by the end of this year. And that's fantastic. And I would encourage every student to not try and go down the line of quitting halfway through, particularly AAT level four. I always think it's a real shame when students don't complete and get to the end of level four because they're so close. And if you can get your AAT level four, that means you're invited to membership of the AAT. And that's really, really well regarded, means you can put the letters after your name and get full membership status with the AAT. But this student is working for a small practice and really enjoying tax. And why wouldn't you? Dave and I both love tax. Um, I can't profess to be a, a tax expert, but I do teach personal tax and business tax at AAT level four. Dave, I know you've gone on and taught some high level tax stuff. First question is about career and qualification advice for someone to wanting to pursue tax. And I think this student looking particularly at maybe going on and doing one of the tax specific qualifications, CTA and ATT. Have you got any thoughts around those qualifications, Dave, or pursuing a career in just tax? I have um, I have taught um, the ATT qualification in the past. Um, and I, I've, I've taught tiny, tiny bits of CTA, but I, I wouldn't profess to be a, a CTA tutor in anything other than those fringe areas that I've looked at. So um, the, the thing that I would look at is if you want to pursue a career in tax, what do you know so far about working within tax? Because you've got on the one hand, you, you, you know, you, you could have an amazing career where your job is working with lots and lots of individuals and you can have an amazing career looking at making sure that those individuals have their tax returns filed correctly, they're paying the right amount of tax, that you're advising them on when they need to make payments on accounts and you're, you're you know, brilliant at doing that. And ATT is the qualification to do that. It's a brilliant qualification that teaches you what you need to know 
about how you calculate and how you work out tax bills and tax liabilities for all different taxes. So if, if that's what you're thinking in terms of a career in tax is me because I love those kind of processes. And that's what, when I started working in practice, that's what I did. But when I started in practice, my first role was working in personal tax and calculating and processing tax returns. Now, the other aspect of tax is the more advisory side of it, where you don't get that day-to-day -day or that year-to-year -year contact with your clients. People will come to you because they need advice about their affairs. And people might only come to you once every five or once every 10 years to get that kind of tax advice, because we only ever seek tax advice when something new is happening in our lives. So if we're setting up a business, it's a really good uh, uh, idea to go and seek advice from a tax specialist that can tell you the most efficient way to set up that business. If you're looking at acquiring a company, if you're looking at buying large amounts of plant and machinery, it's always worth getting advice from a tax accountant to make sure that you're doing things in the most efficient way possible, to make sure that you are keeping hold of as much of your money as you actually can. Now, if that's the kind of advice you're looking at, that's the kind of work you're looking at in tax, CTA is the qualification that prepares you for that. So uh, I would tend to just think, well, what is it you love about tax? Now, both of those are brilliant careers. Both of them are things that you could do in practice. Um, in, in a small practice firm, um, I, if it's the kind of firm that I worked for, there wasn't a full-time role for a tax advisor. There was a full-time role for about three people that could process tax returns really well. We had a partner that was CTA qualified who gave advice, but that partner also gave advice on other accounting matters as well. So I'd also think about the firm you work for, the firms you're likely to work for and where you would fit in there. The other option as well is working in, in corporate tax and working within a business. And again, you would there, if you, if you were doing that, you'd be looking at big companies. So big companies will have their own tax department. They'll have several people working in that department. You will need to almost certainly have a specialism. So I know someone that is uh, uh, working for a FTSE 100 company who's a VAT specialist. Uh, and they work in the tax department. And all they do is work with VAT. Uh, and, you know, it's understand, well, one, making sure the VAT return gets filed. And that's a VAT return for the, the, bit, the main company, but also for the subsidiaries. And then looking at the VAT treatment of different transactions. And, and the particularly interesting thing that she gets involved in is VAT when we cross borders. And you're dealing with transactions across borders and different types of, of, of indirect tax. So that would be another route that you could go into. And... and I would say if you're going into that kind of environment, CTA is going to be the qualification that's, that's going to be most appropriate there because it's going to be, it's not going to be about completing your tax return. It's going to be about how does this business make sure that it's structured in the most tax efficient way. Um, thanks, Dave. If I could just add a couple of bits from, from my experience, and I worked in practice for 14 years before I started teaching. Um, I agree. Most big firms or big organizations can have their own specialist tax departments and they would be looking for at the highest level, the CTA qualification, even within the CTA qualification, though, and my knowledge of the syllabus is not fully um, up to speed. But my understanding was that there were even variations and optional units within CTA. So you can do CTA and then specialize in VAT and indirect taxations or individuals and trust taxations or corporate and business taxations. So even just doing CTA, there is an element of choice and specialism. I think the ATT is great for that very transactional processing level of knowledge. And if that's what you're largely going to be doing at work, that one will fit very, very nicely. My one word of caution, though, most firms of accountants in the UK are actually affiliated and registered with one of the other chartered institutes, the ICAW, the ACCA. Um, there are also institutes, obviously, in, in Scotland as well. And for the firms to hold those um, membership statuses, a certain number of their owners and partners have to be registered with those institutes themselves. So that's why you'll see a lot of partners actually having the ICAW or the ACCA qualification. Now, if you're in a small firm, there has to be a certain number of partners that hold that qualification to keep the, the status of the firm as it should be. So at that point, there might be some mileage in just making sure that your firm can support you to do CTA. 
The ICAW picked up on this a few years ago, and you might not be aware that the ICAW have got a dual qualification route. So you can do the ICAW exams on the back of AAT level four. You'll get some some quite generous exemptions, but you can then go and do ICAW. But you can also pair that with the CTA and get a dual qualification. Really, really good for people that like tax but are working in a small practice where they will still do a bit of everything. And therefore, if they want partnership status, might also need to hold the ICAW qualification. Um, final question was around, I suppose, that the cost of study and more importantly, getting value for the study. I think this student acknowledges they've spent some of their own money and that means they bought books and material that they've not really used. My experience is that, that the books and the material tend to be relatively similar, whichever provider you are with. I would argue the first intuition stuff is brilliant. But I don't think we would distinguish ourselves by the textbooks or the material. I think we would distinguish ourselves by the, the skills of our tutor team, the interaction that we give with students. And if your employer can spare you time to go and do some live delivery, particularly if you're going to go and do something in the higher level tax space, I think that would be an investment that would pay back in your ability to pass the exams and your progression on the units. Having some live sessions really does give you a bit more structure and means you can get some value out of having a tutor to ask questions of, to explain things differently. Dave, I don't know what your thoughts there are on value for money in the, the study space. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I was reading some of the the comments that have been put forward, and um, I, I can understand some of the, I can understand quite a few of them actually, in, in that, I am rubbish at studying. I am not a very good student. I, I am. I mentioned it earlier. I am not very good at reading and understanding stuff. So for me, buying a textbook is not a very good use of my money. I appreciate it's a very you know it's probably the most cost-effective way to get that knowledge in your hands. But for me, it's the least efficient way of getting knowledge into my head because I am rubbish at reading technical books. As I've said before, I can read a novel, I love a biography on holiday, but being able to read a textbook is something that I, I still struggle to do to this day. Um, for me, the most effective way to get stuff into my brain is to have someone show me and tell me how to do things and illustrate how things actually work. And that's the most effective way for me to learn. So it, when it comes to you know, it, it, me deciding to studying something, I will always go for the method of study that involves someone teaching me. Uh, and you know, I appreciate it is more expensive, but if I look at it as in, what is the cost to get the knowledge into my brain, it's definitely more cost effective for me to pay a tutor to teach me than it is for me to pay to buy a book and that knowledge is never going into my brain. So it is, it, it's just worth just looking at what is the way that you learn best and yes, that method may be more expensive, but it's actually going to work out cheaper in the long run to make that investment now than it is to buy something that's just not going to work for you because, you know, your brain isn't wired in a way to digest information that way. I am massively envious of people that can learn stuff just by reading a book. I wish I could do it, but I just don't have the ability to do that. Dave, thank you. Um, I hope for the student asked those questions, that's been useful. Um, continue to focus on your AT level four. I think it's really important that you get that qualification before you then go off to one of the additional qualifications. It will look great for you personally to have completed something that you've started and get the ability to become the full member of the AAT that completion of the level four will allow you to do. Um, Dave, we're really up against the clock. It's nearly seven o'clock as we're recording this. I hope, guys, that session has been useful. Myself and Dave like to come and just answer a range of questions. And tonight's been a real mixed bag. For people listening to the podcast, this is a real flavour of what the live Wednesday sessions are like. Myself and Dave do a bit of a live Q&A before we hit record for the themes of the podcast. So this is giving you a bit of a flavour of what that's like. We are now going to take a slightly extended break for summer. So this is the last live session that we're going to have. We will be back on the 7th, Wednesday, the 7th of September. 
But in the meantime, Dave and I have recorded this morning some recap introductions for some of our favourite podcast sessions. For anybody that's live this evening that's not checked out or ever listened to the podcast, I've just shared the link in the live chat box. This will be, when this one gets released, episode number 102. All of those episodes remain available. They are all there as a back catalogue. But this morning, myself and Dave sat down with a cup of coffee and picked, I think in the end, Dave, it turned into seven episodes that were memorable for various reasons. And what the fantastic guys in the FI marketing team behind the scenes are going to do is release them as a back episode re-release. I think they're planning to do one a week over the summer before we then start back up with the live sessions in early September. Dave, have a lovely summer. And you, Ben. Um, yeah, I, I'm really, I'm actually looking forward to, to some of those episodes uh, that, that are coming up. It's, it's really strange, isn't it, knowing what's happening, whereas normally we are recording things as we go. But I, I know what's coming up over the next five or six weeks. And I, I think it's going to be yeah, really good for people that haven't had a chance to, to catch up on some of the back catalogue. There are some really nice highlights in there. But um, yeah, I, I, I you know, w- want to thank everyone for, um, for listening once again and for coming to the, the live recordings on, on a Wednesday and everyone that's downloaded. Um, it, it blew me blew me away when we, we were looking say at some of the the episodes and, and kind of like getting kind of up to like 700 people listening to some of those episodes you know it just you know it seems absolutely crazy you know for for you know two guys that log on to zoom every wednesday and have a bit of a chat so thanks everyone for downloading and listening if you do get a chance please leave a review if you could like and share the the, the podcast link to all your friends that'd be much much appreciated uh, Ben, i know that we're going to catch up from time to time over the summer but i'm going to miss our wednesdays um you know obviously not too much because i'm going to be enjoying holiday with my with my family but um yeah i'm yeah, I will see you again formally in September. Um, but have a great summer and you know, enjoy it with enjoy it with the family. Thank you, Dave. Thank you, everybody, for those listening, for those downloading. Um, please catch out the, the re-released episodes, and we look forward to seeing you in September back for the live student sessions. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>